I'm Phoebe Lover and this is Intellectual Property, a conversation series exploring the ideas and references that have shaped the minds of our world's most influential creative thinkers. Additional resources, including full transcripts, are available at i-p.world. This inaugural series of IP is broadly themed around education and learning, which means I'll be speaking to my interviewees about the people, places and specific cultural moments that have taught them the most in work and in life. For this reason, I wanted to kickstart the series with media entrepreneur Claude Granitsky, a man who has been one of my greatest teachers since I was a 17 year old intern at his New York based hip hop magazine Trace. In this interview, we chart Claude's journey from his West African hometown of Lome, Togo, to Washington, D.C., Paris, London, and eventually to New York, where he still lives and works, and where this interview took place. Claude's personal lens on the world is one that has been shaped in equal parts by his global travels, his deep passion for music and style, and his boundless intellectual curiosity. I've learned a lot from my conversations with him, and I think you will too. I hope you enjoy the interview. Lord Grinitsky. Hi. Hi. How are you? I feel good. good. It's finally spring and it's looking like there's a bit of sunshine coming our way. So that makes me feel really good. It really makes a tangible difference to the energy of the city, I think. It does. And especially somebody like myself being born near the equator in the tropics and having lived in these climates pretty much my whole life, it just kind of brings back something from my childhood and my days growing up in Togo and just really enjoying the sunshine in like a different way. Muscle memory, <laughs> the equivalent thereof, climate memory. Absolutely, yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, let's start off. I mean, I would introduce you, but I, I don't know how you currently identify your, your title. What's your, how do you just tell people what you do nowadays? It's very difficult to explain, but the <laughs> so easiest, the easiest uh, way to do it is to go back to the common denominator for my career, yeah. which is I've been a media entrepreneur. A media entrepreneur. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. how I would define myself, a media entrepreneur and a writer, journalist and editor. Okay, yeah. That's, I mean, Even you, though I do other things, that's how I would summarize it for people who don't you, know what a media entrepreneur is. You do a lot of things, you really do. I mean, you are definitely one of the hardest working people I've ever met. You're always on a plane, you're always in a different city. We first met here, well, no, we didn't meet here, but we, I first sort of like became involved in your working world a little bit in New York when I was 16 and I recently wrote about that in my newsletter and at that time you were running Trace magazine and True Agency so we're going to go on to that in a little bit but I wanted to start by getting a little bit of background I mean I know a little bit about your earlier life but I don't know a huge amount considering how long we've known each other and specifically talk to you a bit about the lens of your childhood through education and like learning I know you went to school in a bunch of different places can you give me a bit of background on all that well it's really interesting because when I was a child growing up in Togo I was born in Lome which is a very interesting capital in Africa because it's right on the border of Ghana and interestingly enough the culture of Ghana of eastern Ghana is part of the culture of Togo as well because we have to remember it was all one country so Togo being a French-speaking country and Ghana being an English-speaking country I as a child, learned to understand various cultures and various languages. Mm. So I learned the language of Togo, the main official language of Togo, French, but after learning the vernacular languages of Mina and Eve, which are 
really important languages that the whole population speaks and not just people who went to school. Mm-hmm. And it was also interesting growing up in a family where my father was a real intellectual who was very successful in politics mm-hmm. and he'd come from a, an intellectual family that was a Polish family that became more and more Togolese with the generations. And so he was a high-level thinker, but my mom actually never went to school. Mm. And growing up, it was interesting spending weekdays with my dad and the world of intellect and books and ideas, and then going to my mom's place, uh, my sister and I on the weekend, and having to live and understand and navigate a different world, Mm. which was about people who never had any sort of formal education, but then had a real level of emotional intelligence that ended up helping me as I became educated in trying to venture into different worlds. Mm. So for me, having that experience as a child would probably be the defining experience of my life, being able to understand the world of people who are educated versus people who are not educated, Mm. the world of people who are quite well off versus people who are below the poverty line. Mm. And and, and I think that my travels and my transcultural ventures eventually reflect those early awakening moments yeah that's so interesting I didn't know all of that but it it makes total sense and just reminds me a little bit of my own childhood coming from a background with like a big intellectual you know my parents are well read and everything but also living in public housing and sort of having that experience and kind of moving between those two and it doesn't have to be a dichotomy in a sense because you actually learn from both worlds. Mm. I remember as a child, I went to Ecole Montaigne, named after the great French philosopher in Lomé, which was at that time the best school for, for grade school. And that was such a great experience for me going to school and learning. And at the same time, I'd come back and ask my mom about this thing that I learned in school. And a lot of those things she didn't know. Yeah. And then it's only maybe a few years ago that I discovered that I share the same uh, birthday with Montaigne himself, the great philosopher. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was living in Togo. And then when I was eight years old, my dad was named ambassador of Togo to the United States. So we moved, my sister and I, with my dad and stepmother to Washington, D.C. And, and then we went to the French Lycée in Bethesda, Maryland, which was a totally different experience because that was the most diverse environment I'd ever seen because right. all of a sudden I was surrounded by not just Togolese kids and a few Ghanaian kids and other West African kids, but with children from all over the world, mm. not only because of the diplomatic world that kind of converged around DC, obviously, yeah. but also because people who worked at the World Bank and the IMF. So it was a certain level of privilege that we were kind of experiencing as children of our dad, the ambassador. Right. But at the same time, I was confronted at the age of eight with what it was to be in an environment with people who speak all kinds of different languages in a French school in America and having to make all of that my new identity. That's a lot for, how old were you at that point? I was eight years old. That's a lot for an eight-year-old to absorb. It was. And then, so we were in Washington, D.C. for four years. So living in Washington, D.C. and then going to Bethesda, Maryland, and then spending the summers with our mom in Togo, which was a whole new set of imaginations, obviously, coming back from America and going back to Togo to my mom's world. And then when I was 12, my dad was uh, fired by the president of Togo, and that was the end of his political career. And we were sent, my sister and I, to boarding school outside Paris. And so I ended up spending my teenage years in a Catholic boarding school right outside Paris. And that really was a very deep and, and intense experience for me. In what sense? In the sense that I dealt with 
direct racism as a child in a very different way from what I'd seen in Washington, D.C. Right. Which, you know, being Chocolate City, the black experience in D.C. is very different from, it is, from what it is in other American cities. And all of a sudden being a minority, one of only two or three non-white children in a Catholic boarding school, which was a very bourgeois environment mm. that was also another level of privilege and just people questioning my identity based on my race, based on my hair, based on my skin color, mm. and based on the experiences of coming there as an African who'd lived in America. It was really confusing, but at the same time, it really ended up shaping a lot of the decisions that I made later on in life. Right. Did you find solace in your studies at that point? I or? did. I did find solace in my studies because I met this French language teacher, uh, Jean Ferret, who is really the person who changed my life. Because when I was uh, 14 years old, he read one of my essays for his class that I'd written, and he said, you're a writer. And so I never thought of myself as a writer, mm -hmm. but he identified a gift for writing and writing essays, and, and he then ended up really nurturing that side of my personality. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing really well in that environment, even though my experiences on a personal level were so different from yeah. the other school kids that I was spending pretty much the entire week with. Mm. Were you an avid reader at that time? I was. I was an avid reader. Do you recall what kind of things you liked to read as a teenager? Yeah, I do. And I do. A lot of those books were actually recommended by the Professor Jean Ferret. And he uh, actually introduced me to a book that ended up being really important for me as I try to come of age and understand what life was about and what was the meaning of all these things that happened to us. And that book was Candide by Voltaire. Okay. And I read it, I think I was probably 15 years old when I read it. Yeah. And what's interesting is I've read that book six or seven times since then. Yeah. And it's a very slim book. It was published in 1759, 30 years before the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And as a child, I didn't really understand the satire as much. Right. I read it literally. And to me, it was a story about optimism mm. and, and having faith in the future and a brighter future and what some people call the Pangolosian world. But as I got older, I understood the satire and that a lot of the misadventures and the really difficult episodes in Gandhi's life were actually a critique of society, French society, and of the world itself. Right. And so it's interesting that different layers of lived experience ended up Altering yeah. <laughs> your view of a, of a book, of a yeah. seminal book that, that had an impact on you. But early on, your takeaway was optimism. My takeaway was optimism because that is the subtitle of the book, right? right. However, I realize that it's a critique of optimism, mm -hmm. but it's a really smart, constructive critique of optimism. And I've always said that I was an optimist. Everybody's always called me an optimist. On my first Facebook account, the first word was optimist. Mm. And I've lived my life as an optimist. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of understood that there's a way to live your life that is not necessarily blinded by blind optimism. Mm. I mean, the fact that you were able to like cultivate optimism as a life philosophy at the age of 15 or whatever, when you were in and doesn't sound particularly positive environment is, you know, that's interesting. And like testament you do, I, I would definitely disagree. You're always positive about stuff. What does optimism mean for you now? Optimism is a little bit different from what I was experiencing as a child because my childhood was really about a series of disillusions with what had happened politically in Togo and a lot of the letters that I've kept 
which was my correspondence with my dad, who was really unhappy with the way things had worked out or not worked out for him and the way that Togo was adrift as a military dictatorship and and a lot of the post-independence optimism that I'd felt from him when I was a child and seen was gone. So I kind of hung on because I, I, I clung on to optimism as a way to understand that there could be a better future. And a lot of that also has to do with our Christian faith and so on. Mm-hmm. And now that I've had so many ups and downs in my career, professional life, and learned to be a little bit more cautious in the way that I, I'm not always very trusting of people in the way that I was maybe when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. starting out in business and becoming a media entrepreneur. I have still have faith in certain people, but I've learned to trust my instinct a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that may have to do with the very high level of emotional intelligence that I saw in my mom, right. who, because she didn't have the intellectual baggage of having read a lot of books and, 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 and having gone to school, mm-hmm. she always relied on her instinct. Mm-hmm. And that emotional intelligence has helped me later on in life. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would say that in the first part of my career, my 20s and, and early 30s were just driven by optimism and this faith that things were going to work out one way or another. Mm. And that is also finally because I'd seen that things hadn't worked out for my dad and for my father's side Mm. in politics, and I feel like I learned from some of their mistakes, and and I felt that if I don't repeat those mistakes, then things will end up working out. Right. It's it's interesting, though, that you've had this the trajectory of your relationship with optimism and and this transition to relying more as you say on your instinct and your emotional intelligence it, there's a parallel with that in contemporary work culture where nowadays a lot of kind of new you know obviously I read a lot of work focused books and literature and essays and emotional intelligence is like the new key skill that everyone's touting you know Alan de Botton just wrote a book called the emotionally intelligent office and that's kind of like the big mo of school of life his platform and it's kind of seen as the essential skill of the modern age Mm -hmm. rather than maybe the sort of, yeah, the more traditional forms of education that you were brought up on in your schooling environments. And I discovered a lot of that really not too long ago because I know that Daniel Goleman wrote a really interesting book called Emotional Intelligence and people were talking about it a lot. But, But for me, it's something that I experienced directly as as I interacted with my mom, mm-hmm. initially as a child living in Lome and seeing her only on weekends because my mom and dad were not together, mm-hmm. and then spending summers with her when I was living in America and then moved to France and London, I would only see her and I would just see how she'd become a seamstress and she survived just on the back of a really high level of what now people call emotional intelligence. Mm. I'd like to talk a bit more about that and how it's played in your career later on, but I'm also interested in at that point in your life, maybe your sort of late teens moving, you know, your teens, late teens, moving maybe into your early 20s, like the impact that your relationship with pop culture or music, those facets of culture was sort of impacting you. Because obviously you went on to establish a music and style magazine, I guess you could broadly define it as. And what was your kind of early exposure to the kind of stuff you actually ended up documenting later on in Trace? Well, for me, it was really an experience that came out of what I'd seen in Washington, Mm D.C. as a child Mm -hmm. and what I would see when we would visit our uncle who was living in New York and working for the United Nations. My father's brother was working for UNICEF in New York and we would spend weekends here. And I saw the beginning of hip-hop culture Mm -hmm. 
I was 10 in 1981, which is mm. when we'd go to New York a lot. And I really loved this thing that I saw happening in New York. And even though I wasn't in it, I could feel that it was going to be big. So by yeah. the time I got to Paris and my boarding school outside Paris, I became obsessed with hip hop culture. Yeah. And that obsession turned into a career. How were you interacting with hip hop culture from a boarding school in Paris? Well, there was a show that would actually air on the weekend in France on national television. And that show was called Hip Hop. And it was, it was, <laughs> so it was like it, it. exactly because France was always the second hip hop nation after the States. At that time, it was. And they would invite all these hip hop icons, Africa Bambata and everyone else. And that show aired on the biggest French network, which is called TF1. That's incredible. Primetime show. Is it on YouTube? And it's on YouTube. Is it? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And it turns out that one of the main producers of the show ended up becoming one of my closest friends, like 20 years after I experienced that show as as a teenager. And so I would kind of live vicariously through those guests by watching that hip hop show on TF1 on weekends. Mm. And I said, this thing is going to be really important for me. And then when I got a little bit older as a teenager... I managed to meet some older guys, including some American guys who were living in Paris, mm. and they snuck me into the club Bobino. Bobino was the best hip hop club back then. Where and was it in Paris? It was near Montparnasse, the, the train station yeah. in the 14th. And that was incredible because being there as a teenager, 17, 18 years old, and just understanding and hearing this American hip hop that was also being fused with some of the French hip hop that was being produced then, I said, this has got to be my world. And then when I turned 20, I heard Massive Attack's album, Blue Lines. And I said, this is my sound. This is a sound that I want to be close to. This is exactly what I'm feeling. It's expressing my worldview. And I moved to London from Paris, where I was studying at Sciences Po. I moved to London and just decided to become a music writer, even though I was still a student. I was freelancing as a music writer. So did you finish your degree in Paris? Or you transferred? No, I transferred to London University. Oh, okay. I never finished my degree in Paris because I could feel that that trajectory of just being studying politics and, and just being in that world of the French bourgeois from a different life uh, experience was going to be detrimental to who I thought I could really be. Yeah. And so I chose London and that was freedom for me. So as soon as I got to London at age 20, I really came alive as a writer, as a cultural critic, as somebody who would sneak into all these shows, the Brixton Academy. I was there all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and then one day I met Jefferson Hack, and, and that was the beginning of my career in publishing. Right. What was your relationship with Jefferson like? What were you doing for him at that time? When I met Jefferson, I had already become a fan of his magazine, Days and Confused, which was a pretty new culture magazine at the time. Yeah, now we're in the early 90s. Now we're in 1994. By then, I just graduated from University of London. Jefferson had an office at 56 Brewer Street in Soho. Mm. And I just walked up to his office one day and said, can I be your assistant or intern or whatever I could do for you to help you out? You don't have to pay me. And that is probably one of the best decisions I ever made because I became his consigliere and we became very close friends, pretty much the same age, but I was helping him out Mm -hmm. with whatever he needed. And he didn't have money to pay very many people at the time. And when we all moved to 112 Old Street and, and were part of this shortage wave, it became super exciting because the dazed and confused circle was expanding to include people like Alexander McQueen and his stylist, Katie England, who was working with us, and Katie Grand, and all these wonderful journalists who were really interested in fashion, but as it related to music and film and art. 
and just contemporary culture in general. And so I worked under Jefferson for about a year, and then he allowed me to incubate my own magazine inside of his office at 112 Old Street. So I was in shortage launching this new magazine. Him, wasn't it? Yeah, it was him. <laughs> and I always thank him for giving me that opportunity for incubating my first venture. So tell us about your first venture. What was the concept there? How did that evolve in your mind? The first venture was a short-lived magazine called True, which was launched in June of 1995. And we, and when I say we, I meant my best friend and cousin, Sunita Olympio, we launched that magazine because we were both obsessed with hip hop mm -hmm. and we were both Londoners and we felt that by aligning ourselves with Nas and the new generation of rappers, but also understanding where Massive Attack was coming from, uh, understanding the, the heritage of Soul to Soul and all of the great black British R&B bands, mm -hmm. we could do something pretty special. And the magazine became successful almost immediately. We were in the basement of the Days and Confused office on 112 Old Street. Who was on your first cover? The first cover was Method Man. Wow. Photographed by Baron Claiborne. And Ooh. that was Method Man smoking a lot of weed. And that was our cover shot. Mm -hmm. And that was fantastic because we learned. We'd never had any experience in publishing, but we just did it. We just did it because I'd learned a little bit from Jefferson and the Days crew. And it just happened. But then... Seven to eight months into that venture, we started arguing all the time, my cousin and I. We were equal partners, business partners, yeah. and we started arguing because we didn't have the same vision for what this True Magazine was supposed to be. And a year into that venture, True Magazine uh, ended up folding, and we'd stalled. And I was stuck in London at 25. And then six months later, I regrouped and was able to launch Trace Magazine mm. with a very, very similar logo just turned the U and True into an AC, which then became Trace, mm -hmm. and did that down the road from the Days and Confused office. By then, we were at 65 Clockenwall Road, always I in the east end of London. I love memory for all the addresses. For the addresses, yeah, because... Although, I, as I referenced in the newsletter, 476 Broom Street was, like, seared in my memory. There but that's, that's a later stage. I don't mean to jump ahead. So how did Trace diverge from True, and what was your vision for it at that time? True was much more of a real hip-hop magazine yeah. that had style elements and that was also interested in, in, in film. But Trace was a real urban publication that some people call the style publication. Mm -hmm. So hip-hop was the driver. Yeah. R&B was the other driver. Yeah. But then we were integrating a lot of black music from South Africa, from dance hall culture. Mm -hmm. And we were less of a purist hip-hop publication. Yeah. And then I became more and more interested in and fashion, just from being around Jefferson and Rankin and Katie Grant and Katie England and all my colleagues at Days and Confused. Mm -hmm. So we were increasing the number of pages that were devoted to fashion and style mm -hmm. and street style. Because what was happening then in the hip hop revolution was that a lot of the rappers and MCs and dancers were changing the way they were dressing. And it became super interesting to chart that evolution from a journalistic perspective. Right, because they were moving towards high fashion and away from sort of traditional, from what, what was that transition like? Well, say Mary J. Blige, mm. right, was, in a, was I guess a perfect poster child for what I was doing because she had a style, the hip hop soul. It was a style that other people could call urban chic. It started with the Timberlands, but then she was adding a lot more high fashion elements to the street style, which was the underpinnings of what they projected in the outside world. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that. And we helped them a lot with styling. We worked with them. And that became a really important part of 
the identity of the magazine because the styling and the photography was just as important as the writing. Right. And alongside that, the magazine was informed, like you say, by the emergence of sort of expressions of this culture around the world, which was, to me, like, when I think about Trace, really, that's the first thing that springs out at me is like the idea of transculturalism, essentially, which you can express that a lot better than I can. What? How would you define transculturalism? Well, transculturalism is a word that I discovered by reading some academic journals that were coming out of Canada. Because, really? Yeah, because I knew... See, this is my point. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Can you remember the name of the academic journal you were reading? Uh, I can't remember the exact name, yeah. but there were two or three Canadian authors and academics who were writing about this subject. And I said, this is it. How because, did you... How? Why were you reading random oh, because, journals coming uh, beca- out? Be- because I, I just was curious about cultures that had integrated a lot of different immigrants. So I started understanding the culture of Canada. Then I looked into Brazil... And I looked into the European nations that had really large immigrant populations. Mm -hmm. And Canada seemed to be a place that had done a pretty good job of integrating foreign cultures. Mm. And so I started researching in libraries and I discovered these terms Mm. and I started reading more and I said, this is what I'm going to do. So I started popularizing the term transculturalism and I even changed the tagline for Trace from urban magazine to transcultural styles and ideas Mm. because that's what I felt that we should do. by focusing as much on the styles as on the ideas. And it became really successful as a business, even though the beginnings were really difficult, where we were literally living hand to mouth. Yeah, I'm sure. So that's kind of interesting that you started a magazine with a philosophical underpinning, essentially, as well as this aesthetic appeal. Would you say that you were trying to encourage people to embrace transculturalism as a way of looking at the world, a way of experiencing it? And if so, like what facets of it did you believe were important to communicate? Well, it really started with a desire to destroy stereotypes and erase racism and sexism and a lot of things that we saw, the bad things that we saw in hip hop culture. Mm. And the transcultural term actually came later. I created a whole iconography around that terminology after I discovered the words in Canada. But the reality is we were just reacting to a lot of the problems that we saw in hip hop culture. Mm -hmm. And I remember we worked with a photographer, Terry Richardson, before he was famous. In 1997, a year after I launched Trace, mm-hmm. we published these B-boys who were kissing mm-hmm. and a full bleed. And that was a really important spread in the publication. We, at that time, got a lot of letters because it was still a real strong culture of homophobia in hip hop. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to get rid of a lot of the things that we found problematic with the culture. Even though hip hop and R&B were really progressive, there were a lot of things that we did not like. And transculturalism became just a way to incorporate the different observations that we saw of a world coming together. And when I said coming together of a world that was becoming super modern by becoming more accepting of other cultures, of other religions, other socioeconomic mannerisms, and we documented all of that through music, film, fashion, and cultural reportage. And so I would say that the transcultural terminology was more the consequence of the early experimentation around trying to destroy stereotypes. And then once we had the war to describe what we were trying to do, it became a lot easier to rally journalists and writers and photographers around our mission, which was defined as transcultural. Mm. You clarified the concept with that word. This was a time when the internet was still, I mean, I guess you had, you were working on email or whatever, but there was pre-social media and pre sort of like internet revolution and 
magazines were still the way that these kinds of ideas spread primarily, right? Because I'm trying to think about how all those concepts would have come together or how people would have learned about them. It's like magazines were it. Magazines were it if you were producing a style magazine, which is what I was doing with Trace. Mm -hmm. But then when I moved from London to New York Mm -hmm. in a conscious decision to be in the center of gravity itself, Mm -hmm. in the birthplace of hip hop and reconnecting with those things that I saw as a child, it was really important to understand the new digital age. And it was really very difficult for us to establish ourselves as a business in Soho at 476 Broom Street because in 1998, it was the beginning of the real dot-com age where everybody was excited about the internet and these dot-coms that were gonna basically shape the way that people consumed information. And as independent publishers, we were able to carve out a niche because we had a really specific subculture that we spoke with. Mm. And, and because we spoke to different lifestyles, right. people still wanted to experience our world through printed matter. And we got lucky in a sense because when we were able to secure major funding from Goldman Sachs to really grow the Trace company, mm-hmm. that was on the back of the fact that a lot of the dot-coms had failed in 2000. Right. And so by the time we secured our funding in 2003, a lot of the dot-coms had gone and people were interested again in what they called real traditional media. And so I was able to do that in magazine format and TV format, but the reality is we were doing the same thing and we stuck to our print roots without immediately just jumping on the bandwagon of trying to create the dot-com because that was the future as the analysts, as the media was sporting. Right. Tell me a bit about that trace world of the kind of early 2000s that I sort of, I guess I, as an intern coming here in 2004, I think I identified it was, got to see a little glimpse of and was obviously totally intoxicated by coming to New York for the first time in the middle of summer and walking into 476 Broom Street and being like, also a massive hip hop fan, also so, you know, inspired by that culture and walking into your world and sort of like getting a feel for it. Can you describe it a bit, that time of your working life? Well, I guess describing it would feel like reminiscing a rhapsody in a sense because it was constant rapture. Every day I would wake up and just couldn't wait to get to work. I'd be in the office till 11, 12, and it was 24-7 in a sense that every evening there'd be some event and we were throwing our trace parties every month as a way to bring the magazine to life and bring our readers to experience what our quote-unquote brand was. And it was just an exciting moment because I had come to New York not knowing anyone. Mm -hmm. And Trace, which had become my calling card because I was wearing a Trace t-shirt every day, going to work at 476 Broom Street and just running into all kinds of people in the streets and then being able to interview rappers and and singers and creatives from all different walks of life. Mm. We became a bit of... um, first port of call for a lot of creatives who were trying to establish themselves in New York and many young photographers and illustrators they came to the trace office unannounced because we had an open door policy and for us it was so exciting to meet these people on a day-to-day basis because no two days were the same so that constant reinvention was something that allowed us to continue as a monthly magazine and then as a bi-monthly and really I feel like we were contributing significantly to the evolution of hip-hop culture while staying true to our roots as an independent publication. Mm-hmm. And, and we were independent until 2003 when we received funding, and then we were a little bit more corporate. But those early years, 
from 1998 to 2003 were super exciting because it was all about an empirical approach to reporting on this massive hip-hop culture as people like DMX were really, really big, and Eminem had come to our office before he was well-known. Alicia Keys hung out in my office before anybody knew who she was. And seeing all these people in the very beginning of their career and being able to speak to them about their dreams and how they felt they could change the world through music or art or photography or whatever, it was extremely exciting. Yeah, definitely. As we said, it was a very optimistic time. And I I think that it wasn't just like my youth and and wide-eyedness, you know, that makes me remember like my interactions with that culture as such. I think it was just, I think especially as you say for hip-hop, it was a very, I guess it was kind of the first time when hip-hop, it had kind of crossed over and so a lot of people really started to make a lot of money off it and New York is, was the epicenter of that, as you say, and that whole scene was, look, seems like it was very vibrant at that time. It was, but it was also a congregation of people who, wanted to make money, of course, but who felt that they had something so special that the whole world wanted to hear. Yeah. And so being able to spend time with the RZA and the Wu-Tang and understanding their world from Staten Island, I actually went to RZA's mom's funeral mm-hmm. in Staten Island and got to understand really how they grew up yeah. in those projects. And knowing that despite the fact that you were growing up in those projects, you could really create a sound and a worldview that would speak to people all over the world. Yeah. That was something that I haven't seen very much in my life. And I'm hoping that the new level of um, interaction that we're seeing on Instagram and social media will allow people to disseminate the message in a more authentic way. Because even though everybody wanted to become rich, everybody wanted to become famous, there was a sense of authenticity and paying your dues that I don't always see in the young creatives that I meet now. Right. Yeah. No. I can't disagree with that. I wanted to go back to... You know, you said you came to New York, you didn't know anyone. And I once read a study on your career in Harvard, Harvard Business Review, is it? That it d- was in Harvard Business Review, but originally it was published as a case study in Harvard Business School. Okay. And from what I recall, that sort of article focused on your network growing abilities, community growing abilities, that facet of your career. Is that correct? Do I remember that yes, correctly? Yes, that's what the focus of the case yeah, study was. Which is very much a kind of emotional intelligence skill, right? Like your ability to come to a city as vast and populated as New York and not only sort of like find a place within it, but also become a nucleus in yourself and through your magazine and the, and the world that you created for a broader network. Like, can you talk to me a little bit about how you've approached doing that throughout your career and how important it's been to your ongoing success? Your people skills, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, I would say that the, those people skills, again, are very directly linked to the way that I saw my mom live her life as a young woman, mother to these children, but who, again, was working as a seamstress, making very little money, but being able to go to environments and be really comfortable because she was always very well-dressed and She would say to me, nobody would ever know that I don't have any money in my pocket because Mm -hmm. I feel like I do belong here. Mm -hmm. And she was able to interact with people in a different way. Mm -hmm. And coming to New York without any money, without any funding, no backing, I was really ballsy in the way that I felt that I could own this city. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, New York allowed you to just really express yourself and people would give you a chance to pitch or whatever it is that you were trying to do. And I was approaching people that I respected because I had drawn a list of the people that I considered to be most influential within the world of hip hop and R&B and urban culture. Mm-hmm. And I made a deliberate effort to meet those people. 
I would meet them at events, at book launches. I would meet them at screenings, at fashion shows. I would just walk up to people because I wanted to meet them. And that's how I got to meet a lot of people in the city, even though initially I didn't know anyone. And then I got very lucky because I became very close to Beth Ann Hardison, who really took me under her wing, who mentored me, who introduced me to a lot of people who ended up helping me as an entrepreneur. And I guess one of the reasons they helped me as an entrepreneur, because they could see that I was about something mm -hmm. and they could see that I had a real vision for what Trace could become, mm -hmm. even though independently I was just trying to survive. But New York at that time allowed people with a big dream to get in front of people who could help them. Whereas now there's a lot more gatekeepers and it's a lot more difficult. And because the intermediation that has come with the internet has kind of changed the way that you deal with people and that you can actually interact. Mm, which is ironic because it's supposed to obviously foster greater connectivity, but you're sort of saying that you don't feel that it, not, it doesn't foster authentic Not really, because back then I would go to a conference and actually endeavor to have a real conversation with the person. I would go to whatever it is that they were promoting and wait in line and just speak with them. And that little elevator pitch, which was related to what I was trying to say about what I considered important about Trace was a real opportunity to interact face-to-face. -face. Whereas now, everybody believes that just sending a DM is gonna be the solution to actually meeting somebody. Mm. And, and I don't think that you can actually ever really replace these face-to-face -face interactions. Because yeah. I was a witness, right? If Woody Allen, and a lot of people don't wanna talk about him, but if he did say that 80% is about showing up, I was the one who really did show up and waited and made sure that I had my one or two minutes with whoever it is that I wanted to meet. Yeah. You've been a mentor of mine and I'm sure you play that role in maybe not a lot of people's lives because I know you're busy, but you know, people come to you for advice often, I'm sure. How do you advise people to navigate that side of, of building it? Do you still think it's as important as it was in that era to have all these in-person connections? I mean, in the Harvard reviews on you, it's literally like it details a spreadsheet you had, which like where you kept up with how you would maintain contact with all these people and like a really quite a methodical way of, of ensuring that you had this strong network around you. I, I did that for years because I knew exactly the people who mattered to me because I was doing so much research about them and what they were doing yeah. and how I could add value to whatever it is they were doing yeah. through Trace or in other ways. There are certain people that we never wrote about in Trace, but we ended up collaborating on marketing campaigns together. Mm -hmm. Or we promoted their book because we just liked what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these reactions that we had to what was happening in the culture were just based on love. And keeping a spreadsheet was not a way to automate a process. It was much more of a way to make sure that... You were doing it. That I, we were doing it and yeah. keeping a to-do list of these people. And there was an excitement in New York about being able to find people back then because it is the one city, perhaps London in some ways as well, where you can actually meet pretty much anyone. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to meet Zadie Smith, then I would find a way to meet Zadie Smith Let's within two her. or three months. <laughs> you know I love her. <laughs> um, so when that era sort of came to an end, that era of Trace and New York kind of feeling the way that it did and the recession, I believe, had a big impact on that broader bubble, sadly, bursting a little bit you decided to go back to school is that right after that era you was followed directly by you going to MIT have I got my yeah, timeline yeah that's right? exactly what happened the recession which started in 2008 2009 
was really brutal for the publishing industry. Mm. And even though I had diversified, to use a very corporate term, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and started venturing into marketing and television, magazines were still my first love because that's what I knew and that's where I'd actually excelled. I had been involved in running two or three different companies on three different time zones and moving between London and Paris and New York and LA on a monthly basis. I got lost in the shuffle of trying to expand and trying to become a really successful media entrepreneur versus just an independent magazine publisher, which is what I was before. And the crisis really hurt us because overnight we lost most of our advertisers and we'd expanded and hired all these people, more than 100 people across four offices. And I was in a situation where all of a sudden we had to let people go because we just didn't have that revenue anymore. And a lot of those clients literally sent us termination notices and they were gone within a month or two. So here we were, we thought we built this really successful series of businesses around the trace and true brands, Mm -hmm. and we were stuck with a situation where we had overhead that was bigger than what we were actually bringing in as revenue. Mm -hmm. So I realized how non-sustainable my model was, Mm -hmm. and I realized that this crisis, despite the election of Obama, who we had a lot of faith in, was going to last for a while. Mm -hmm. And that was a period where... I started doing a bit of soul searching because I was about to turn 40 and I thought, oh, I've been very successful in my 30s. I've been able to make some money. I've been able to hire a bunch of people, meet all kinds of people, do what I love, which is journalism and expand my business. Mm -hmm. But I've reached a point where I'm stuck because I'm doing things the old way. I made two big mistakes. I tried to expand too quickly. And number two, I got away from the roots of what had made me successful in the first place, which is really that laser-like focus on excellence in publishing. And I felt that I really needed to step away from New York and that constant 24-hour party, work, party lifestyle and and get away from New York and be in more of an academic setting. Mm. And so that's when I applied to go to MIT as a Sloan Fellow and I was accepted, which was really great because I'd always wanted to go to MIT. And that MIT Harvard ecosystem, I had a lot of friends who had studied there, who had taught there, and I felt it's great because it's close enough to New York that I can always come back to New York, Mm -hmm. but it's still pretty much a college town, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Boston. Mm -hmm. And and I really just left New York and moved to Boston and did the Sloan Fellowship and also got an MBA when I was there, just because (laughs) I felt that- Just on the side. (laughs) Yeah, just on the side, because I felt that I made some business mistakes and, and I thought, why not use this opportunity to get an MBA from MIT Sloan and just understand some of the mistakes that I made in order not to repeat them in my next venture? What was the biggest, I mean, I'm sure you've taken a lot of information doing an MBA at that kind of institution, but is there sort of one lesson or, or idea from that time that really you've carried with you ever since? The ability to adapt to changing environments. Right. Which, that is something by the that way, is, really is the difficult. other big thing that's trending in contemporary work culture as a key skill because we're living in such a rapidly changing world a lot of the kind of stuff that i'm reading at the moment anyway is about an ability to keep up with that so what does that mean for you now well for me and i'm glad people are getting interested in that because i wish i had access to some of these books and some of these workshops i knew how to make money from advertising yeah. and subscriptions so i had a model that i perfected you increase your circulation, you increase your 
visibility and you attract sponsors who pay and you make money and you become profitable. And then when the internet changed the game altogether, mm. I realized that we had to reinvent ourselves by really getting into understanding how digital media was changing. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons I went to MIT was so I could camp out at the MIT Media Lab mm -hmm. because I met some people who'd been there and who studied there and who'd done research there. And I felt that they were inventing the future of media and distribution of media, new business models around media. And that was great because mm -hmm. MIT was great because it was also proximity to the Neiman Lab at Harvard University, which was really good because mm -hmm. I didn't want to be influenced by New York hipsters or the cool cats in New York yeah. who were so obsessed with making it that they didn't question themselves in the way that I refused to question myself once I became successful. Because I just thought, I know how to do this. I got this. And it's just going to keep getting better and better. Mm -hmm. And so withdrawing and realizing that you're stuck, realizing that you stalled and stepping back to be a student mm -hmm. in an academic environment, I think that's really a decision that I do not regret. And it showed me empirically that I could do things differently and that I needed to question my own decisions and my own motivations, actually. And what was the kind of key thing you came away from on a personal level that sort of guided the next move you made in your career? Well, the key learning for me was that I needed a new vision because I had had this vision for hip hop culture since I was a teenager. And that drove my entire career throughout my 20s and 30s. And I needed a new vision around what would I be documenting? I couldn't keep doing the same thing, which is basically writing about rappers and R&B singers and fashion designers and thinking that that was going to be significant. It wasn't satisfying for me anymore. Mm -hmm. Also because I was getting older and I didn't have the same love and obsession for hip hop. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like it was really important for me to focus on Africa. And why? Because I spent a lot of time talking to my mom and my relatives back in Togo and I could feel that there were a lot of really exciting things happening within several metropolitan areas in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I traveled a lot to various continents, even just growing the Trace brand. Mm -hmm. And I could see that there was a youth energy, a new youth culture that needed a voice and that needed platforms for self-expression. And that really is what I try to do. You'd spent a lot of time researching and writing on that through your fellowship as well, I right? did, I did. One of the great things about being at MIT in a bit of a privileged status, which is the one that I had as a Sloan Fellow, is that you get free money to do a bunch of things. So <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> it's great. You get this bunch of people just give you money to do things. And I had also saved up some money for my ventures. And I was able to go to various African cities, uh, starting with my own hometown, Lome. And then I went to spend time in Accra and in Nairobi, Johannesburg. Lagos just researching what was happening in youth culture and how could we tell those stories on a web platform. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking of digital media in a different way. And so MIT Media Lab and the MIT environment really helped me to critique some of the early ideas that I had mm -hmm. and some of the preconceived notions that I had about how media should be perceived and distributed and consumed. Mm -hmm. And that really helped. And I stayed very involved with MIT since I started... Um, my Sloan Fellowship there in 2011. Mm -hmm. And I'm still going to Boston now every month because I'm now teaching workshops at the Harvard Kennedy School. So that's been great. I teach social entrepreneurship okay. in workshop and masterclass models where it's really helping students, usually at the master's level, to look at ways in which they could scale their social impact ventures. Mm -hmm. And these might be micro ventures, but it's students who want to launch something that will have significant social impact 
versus being a money-driven enterprise. And has that been one of the foundations of true Africa? Try to, well, what, tell us a bit about the next thing that you ended up doing So before I jump ahead. While at MIT and being able to get money to research, to travel, to interview people, to document, I launched the beginning of what became True Africa. Mm -hmm. So I ended up launching True Africa as a media platform championing young African voices mm -hmm. in 2015. Mm -hmm. But before that, I had spent the years 2011, 12, 13, and part of 14 just working with various professors and researchers and PhD students and engineers at MIT on what this new iteration of my media ventures could be. In 2014, there was a great report that came out from the New York Times. It was called the Innovation Report. Mm -hmm. And that was really great because it showed that a great media company like the New York Times, which in my opinion is the greatest media company, was in danger, was in danger as well because they hadn't reinvented themselves. Right. So they were kind of dealing with the same issues that I was dealing with, albeit on a much larger scale. Yeah. And so with all that information, I used that as a way to think about what True Africa could become and how it would not be so much about the writers and editors, but it would be about identifying people and giving them a megaphone for telling their story from an African perspective. Mm. So that was 2015, and obviously that's been your major focus for the last few years alongside your myriad speaking and teaching commitments. I don't know how you manage, and uh, having a child, of course. Yes, so you getting married, having uh, a child, okay, all of that. You know, just squeezing that in <laughs> yeah. somewhere, uh, doing the MBA, whatever. Where are you at now? I mean, what, you're, you're obviously doing True Africa, and, and like for people who maybe are not so familiar with it, or, you know, how would you define the mission of that platform? And everything associated with it? Well, I created True Africa after this three to four year incubation period as a way to help young Africans express themselves mm -hmm. about culture, about creativity, about technology and the new things that were shaping their lives. Mm. And it's interesting because we were off to a great start. 2016, 17 were really good years for us, but it's been really difficult scaling mm -hmm. as a self-funded, independent media venture. So even though we got a bit of funding from Google and we were able to empower some of these voices that we'd identified, but just by being on the ground and talking to them, it's been really difficult from a business model perspective because a lot of media companies, as I'm sure you know, are still trying to figure it out. And yeah. so we are in that category of media companies that are trying to figure it out. Yeah. And so initially just the intuition that okay, we could just launch a really good website that is well-designed and easy to navigate and publish a bunch of African stories that were truly homegrown. Mm -hmm. That intuition proved to be a bit of a fallacy in a sense. Mm -hmm. And now I'm reinventing the business model by trying to link the different black experiences all over the world, as opposed to focusing on continental Africa. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to find commonalities between the black experience in Brazil and the Caribbean and the African-American culture here, the European diaspora, mm -hmm. as well as the African continent mm -hmm. and having a much larger vision around blackness. Wow. And, 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 and so in a way, it's a bit of an evolution from what I was doing with Trace, mm -hmm. because back then it was really more about youth culture through hip hop. Mm -hmm. But now I want to use blackness and the evolution of the black identities to reinvent what true Africa is supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting that you say that. One of the, I told you before we started recording that I just interviewed Tyler Mitchell, the African-American photographer, 
we spoke a lot about his personal mission to sort of, through his work, speak on that same experience. And visually, you know, the idea of black utopias came up a lot. He's really influenced by the work of the fashion designer Grace Wells Bonner, who has been looking at... Which is fantastic. At, yeah, she's and a lot of her work is based on this conceptual underpinning of her research into the diaspora, African diaspora around the world and how that manifests in material culture, but also obviously in all different facets. So it's that's come up already, even the series of me doing these podcast interviews as a major theme. It's a really important thing right now with Black Lives Matter and everything else that's happening in the black world. Yeah. I would even take it as far as fees must fall movements in, in, in South Africa. There's a lot of black freedom fighters who are trying to change what it is to be perceived as black. Mm. And that goes to Afropunk and a lot of cultural producers out there that I really respect. Mm. But for me, it came out of a real disappointment in noticing that 10 years after Obama took office, the promises that we had seen and heard around the time of his inauguration mm. are very difficult to tabulate when we look at the current environment and how we're threatened everywhere. And as a black male, we're always being perceived as a threat and this is something we live with and that's okay. And that's just from going from riding the subway, riding an elevator and having somebody clutch their handbag because they feel that you are a threat instinctively. Mm -hmm. But then Obama being elected was such a big thing for me and for so many other black people around the world yeah. because we really did think that he was gonna solve the problem of racism mm. in eight years. We really did think that. We really did think that he was going to change people's perceptions all over the world and create opportunities for black people just because of the mission that he'd embarked upon, just because of the strength of Michelle Obama as a first lady, and just because of their own personal history. Mm. And in this age of Trump and division and polarization, it's mm. become really difficult as a black person, not to feel that this is something that we need to react to, mm. that we need to be much more vocal about, mm -hmm. and that there needs to be some sort of revolution that comes in the form of creativity. And it doesn't necessarily have to go through politics in the way that Barack kind of rode the activism wave to the highest levels of political achievement. Mm -hmm. I think we can do it with people like Tyler, with people like Grace, and use black creativity as a way to continue what people like Quincy Jones had done. Mm. And I think that that's going to be really powerful because politics are going to have to react to this new wave of black activism through creative expression. Do you see this as, a, in a way, a sort of perhaps more conscious continuation of this lineage that really, in terms of mass culture anyway, started with, well, maybe not even started with hip-hop, but hip-hop really was you know, a black cultural movement that seemed to have a global resonance that even though obviously black culture has had a massive impact since, you know, since time began, that hip hop was had this universality to it. Universality is that yes. a word? <laughs> yes, that is a word. <laughs> okay, good. Just checking. Mm -hmm. um, that really marked it out as a kind of, you know, this global culture. Does this feel like a continuation of that or does it feel almost just like, you, do you feel almost like you have to go back to your ideas around the transcultural early trace days and, and reframe them and revisit them? A lot of the work that I do now is look to the spirit that I had back then as a young 
budding publisher who really had this idealistic, you mentioned the word utopia, utopian view mm. of what the world could be, yeah. using publishing as just the conduit to that particular type of expression. Mm -hmm. I do that because I want to question myself and take myself outside of these kind of corporate interests and understand what it is that drove us to create in the first place. Mm. And so the work that I do now is try to go back to the 24-year-old who had this dream mm. and launch my ventures with that same do-or-die mentality. And I think that it's becoming really important now because the internet has allowed many people to express themselves. Yeah. And those of us who came of age before the internet age, who are not millennials, who are Generation X, is the generation that I belong to. I think we have a little bit more experience now. I think people in my generation, Erica Badu is in my generation, Jay-Z, Diddy, the black entrepreneurs, the black creatives who came of age in this way, I think we have a role to play mm -hmm. by mentoring the new generation of creatives mm -hmm. so that they become our legacy in a way because our legacy is much bigger than our own cultural productions or our own media productions or our own expressions. And so I believe that there's going to be a movement of people coming together, a new golden age of black creativity. Mm. In a way, it's almost like Opportunity Magazine and how the writers from the Harlem Renaissance would rally around Opportunity Magazine and invent a new black world. And my friend, Taya Selassie, the writer, who was a great influence on me, she talks about this a lot, mm. that we need to come together and express ourselves whether it's through poetry, whether it's through film, whether it's through photography, whether it's through television shows, mm -hmm. and find a way to change people's perceptions around what it is to be black, because these stereotypes are really hurting, not just us, but the culture at large. Mm -hmm. And the violence that we're seeing on every street corner mm -hmm. is a reflection of this fact that surviving as a minority in these developed Western nations has become increasingly difficult. And I think that we have enough experience now that we can talk about these things from a lived-in point of view versus being young and idealistic and hopeful. What, what, what do you feel optimistic about now? I feel really optimistic about new TV producers like Issa Rae. Mm -hmm. I think what Beyonce is doing is really important. Yeah. I think what Solange is doing is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And... I think the new generation of black writers that I am really interested in, whether it's Teju Cole or Chimamanda, mm -hmm. they are really shaping the culture in ways that I could never have imagined. That really gives me a lot of hope for the future mm -hmm. because a lot of them just know each other, they work together, they collaborate, they inspire each other, and they're not stuck in this box of what black creativity is supposed to look like. And they're constantly reinventing it. And the imagery that's coming out of it the clothing that's coming out of it, the styles, the ideas, that is all really, really great. Yeah. And, and I think that what's really interesting is the collaboration that I'm seeing between Londoners and Parisians and New Yorkers and LA people and Lagos people, mm. Nairobi people, I'd never used to see that. I actually was one of the first people to do that back then mm. through publishing, but now I see people doing it in film mm. and becoming really successful doing it. And also I see new black empowerment through economic freedom, which I didn't really see very many of my friends become rich. I didn't really see very many entrepreneurs become rich in this way mm -hmm. 
by doing something they really love. And that is so exciting to me because I think that there's going to be so many new opportunities for the next generation so long as they stick together and remain truly authentic and don't get consumed by the byproducts of fame and fortune. Well, that's a very hopeful note to end on, I think, Claude. And I want to end it on a hopeful note because you're a hopeful person and you've, um, you've made me hopeful at many points in my life and been a great teacher to me. So thank you very much for making the time to do this. Thank you, Phoebe, for this opportunity. Thank it was you. super fun. Yeah, it's cool to talk. <laughs>